This episode brought in part by Serverless Guru and made possible by the ever-growing and passionate Serverless community. Whether you're just starting your serverless journey, halfway through migrating your entire legacy system, or are an AWS hero, Serverless Guru can help you migrate, build applications, and train your team on best practices. With a team of front-end, back-end, and full-stack cloud developers, Serverless Guru can get you where you want to be. Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Linda Nichols, a cloud-native technical specialist on the Global Black Belt team at Microsoft. How are you doing today, Linda? I'm doing great. Nice to meet you, Ryan. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. So I'm happy to have you on the podcast. I actually, I watched your your talk on YouTube called A Serverless Love Story. Uh, and it was very fascinating seeing how you drew parallels between the different cloud providers. Yeah, I guess we'll get into that here in a bit. But just to, to kick off today's podcast, I wanted to start with your background and how you got started in tech and how did that begin and and how has it kind of played out? Sure. So yeah, I started really, I guess, in tech in like 1999. So, you know, I'm like on the older side of things, you know, but it is interesting because I I had a very like non-traditional background. I went to college for art. I kind of quit college halfway through because I was running out of money. And one of my friends from high school was putting together computers and I was helping him found out I was pretty good at it and that I was making some money. So I was like, well, I'm just going to like work on this computer thing for a while until I finish my degree. And yeah, I ended up just really liking it. And I started out in hardware and then was started working on software. And I actually started out as a Microsoft access developer. I read a book, I learned VBA, I started building these different applications and I figured out how to Incorporate SQL Server and you know classic ASP and started making web pages. I just found I was like okay, I found my calling, and um, I did eventually go back and finish my art degree, and then I ended up also getting a master's degree. But you know, it I really got into it because of the financial <laughs> aspect of it, you know, which isn't you know maybe as beautiful of a story as other people, but I did really find um, a love for it and. It is really interesting that I work for Microsoft now and that my beginning was with Microsoft Access because over over the years, you know, I kind of drifted away and was an enterprise Java developer for a while and then moved on to Node.js and then eventually found this, you know, thing called cloud, which, you know, the cloud was just a place that I deployed, you know, Java apps or Node.js apps. But then, you know, kind of with the invention of serverless, I think the cloud just became so much more attractive to developers and it became this tool for developers and the cloud was no longer about just infrastructure and a place for infrastructure people to be. So yeah, I just, I really kind of embraced serverless and developer process. And that's something I'm still really interested in. I'm obviously still very much in the cloud space and I'm you know, I, I now know Microsoft technology is probably the best, but I'm still very interested in multi-cloud and like what other cloud platforms are doing, you know, not just as like competitors to Microsoft, but I'm just interested in like trends and how the companies are competing and the serverless ecosystem. And probably as you're aware, Ryan, I mean, talking to so many other people in this space, 
you know, the serverless community, I think is great. I think it's just very inclusive and I think everyone knows each other and people are generally friends. There are lots of people on, you know, GCP or AWS serverless teams that I'm friends with and appreciate and like and respect. And it's interesting to see what they're doing. And, you know, even if it's maybe a feature that is directly competing with something I'm working on, it's still really nice. So that was a very long-winded answer, but essentially, yeah, I started from very like interesting, non-traditional roots, and now I'm in a very traditional role, I guess, at Microsoft. No, it's a really fascinating story. Actually, some parallels to how I started in tech. It wasn't I wasn't like a five-year-old or eight-year-old, like you know, making games in, in my basement. I was, uh, I think, I started programming around nineteen or twenty uh, or twenty-one, and I kind of went to a code school learned about cloud, learned about serverless in the middle of it, and then kind of my career kicked off from there. But I think the financial part of programming, it's not the, uh, I guess, the most grandiose way to, to get into it, or but it's kind of the, the reality of it. And I think there's like a quote as well that I like, which is, you know, I think there's like, do what you love, but there's also love what you do. And if you can love what you do, you know, you can end up making that anything. So I definitely fell in love with serverless and cloud and, and programming from that point. And it sounds like you did as well. So it's really interesting. Yeah, switching to kind of going down the track of going from non-traditional to traditional, what does it look like being on the Black Belt team at Microsoft? Is that a real thing? I have no idea from the outside. It sounds very cool, though. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the Black Belt team is really a team of problem solvers. You know, the cloud native team, obviously, we're focusing more in um, the space of Kubernetes and serverless and a lot of open source tooling. And we're really helping customers, you know, use the cloud in the best way possible for their applications. You know, so a lot of us on the team are developers. Some people are a little bit deeper on the networking side. Some people are much more on the app side. But, you know, we kind of tend to tackle very weird problems. And I think that's where Global Black Belt kind of comes from. Because, yes, we might might help architect something, but we're not going to generally come into a case where it's a very like generic architecture or a common problem. And for me, I think that it like fits well with my background because I've been in tech for a very long time, over 20 years now. And so I've seen so much weird stuff over the years. (laughs) And I previously worked for a startup that was like an emerging technology startup where it was our job to essentially be like CTOs for hire. We would go to companies. And a lot of times, you know, we didn't know what we were going to run into at these various companies. We're just advising them anywhere. And as trends started to evolve, a lot of that advising started to become about cloud. But in the process of that, I encountered a lot of interesting companies and problems. And I worked with a lot of like really cool people in a team environment. And so my experience kind of being that person that just, I just had to learn really random technologies or open source tools or things like that. That's really helped, I think, in my black belt role. Because, you know, yes, like, I mean, sometimes migrations can look very similar. App modernizations can look very similar. There's always some weird aspect. (laughs) And that's maybe where we come in. You know, like there's been 
there were a lot of applications where I used tools like, let's say, like Twilio, you know, or I use other deployment platforms. And then we have people coming from that, those areas are using those tools. And so they might call me in and say like, hey, I'm, I have a customer and they're using Twilio and they have this weird error or something. And so that might be what I do. Or, you know, I might be part of like a much bigger migration and it's just, you know, a customer needs support in some serverless area or some area of Kubernetes. Um, and they're just like kind of need that extra push on their journey. So, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I think um, <laughs> Global Black Belt's a really cool name. They, um, I got kind of lucky with that, but, but essentially, yeah, problem solvers. And, you know, all those sort of years working up, working in like startup land where it was very like stressful and erratic and all that is now led to this, I think. <laughs> so each step of my like maybe very odd tech journey is all sort of, coming together I feel like now yeah that's that's really cool that it's kind of converging into this you know thing that you're at now and yeah I'm definitely I'm in the startup land right now and I can you know there's there's not very many guardrails you know you're kind of working day to day trying to figure it out and just you know (laughs) it's not structure there's not hierarchy there's not you know process and there's a lot of things you're just trying to figure out as you run into a wall and so that's that's really cool and I guess like as you've been doing this and you mentioned a couple different things startup experience, the type of work that you do on the global black belt team, support, helping with migrations, things like that, uh, helping with individual uh, errors made with Twilio or something else. What have been some lessons that you've learned and what has uh, been some big takeaways from being in that role and, and helping so many different clients? Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many lessons learned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that I tend to look at everything from the people perspective and I try to think about who the players are. You know, a lot of times when I get on calls, I find that my technique tends to be that I want to know what, where people are coming from and who they are. Like I, you know, I want to do introductions at the beginning of a call. I want to find out who the key players are. I want to understand like, you know, what's everyone's development background? How comfortable are you with the cloud? What's your de- you know, your DevOps process? What sort of revision control are you using? Like, I've just found that understanding the background of teams, like, help them. It, you know, it gives, it allows you to have that empathy. You know, if I have, if I'm talking to a customer and they say, we well, want to go all in on serverless and we're going to completely go in on Node.js and serverless and we want this entire operation to happen in a few months, then I could go in and go, okay, let's all, we're going to do, you know, functions 101 and here's what your architecture should look like and let's all dive in. But I tend to kind of want to ask some questions. Okay, is the team using Node.js now? And they may say, no, we're an enterprise Java team, but we've decided switching languages is the right choice. And then I may say, are you sure? Because you could still continue along this journey using the language that your developers like, you know, or I may, or, you know, I ask about DevOps processes because I think when customers are moving to the cloud or they're in the cloud, sometimes the assumption is, is that they already have all their stuff together. But if you've worked for a startup, you know that no one, ever, no one has their stuff together. <laughs> like, you know, even us internally, like we're not always as, as organized as we should be. So I think that it's important to ask those sorts of questions and also like be really, you know, have some empathy in your response. Like if they say, no, we're not using any revision control. 
yeah, that makes me get some heart palpitations, but I say, okay, that's fine, but let's start there. Let's work on your development process, you know, and then we can think about whether or not you want to use a certain DevOps tool or you want to use a certain service in the cloud or you want to containerize or whatever you want to do. But let's like think about maybe like what you're doing now and not try to introduce quite so much change. Cause like going to the cloud is scary. And I've seen that when it, before it was the cloud, it was always something else, you know, maybe it was people were using some, you know, front end framework like Angular. And then like a CIO would decide everyone needs to move to react and we're all going to do that in a few months, you know? And so in the startup world, maybe we would encounter a team like that and we would have to help them along that journey. But we would also ask some questions like, well, why, you know, why are you making this choice? And I don't know. So yeah, I think it just kind of goes back to, I try to think about people a lot and I've just seen a lot of situations where companies or people are chasing technology and not sort of looking at the big picture or understanding that there are still people behind the computer. (laughs) And, um, you know, I don't know. I've had, I want to say too, I had so many mentors along the way. I mean, I didn't figure out this stuff out on my own. Um, I've just been somewhat, you know, I guess I made the choice to get into open source. I made the choice to join tech communities. I have a really great tech community here in Norfolk, Virginia, but I really got involved in the larger JavaScript community when I started using Node.js. And I didn't really find that sort of community when I was in, when I was writing Java. And I think that that really helped me to, to learn a lot to understand like what people, other people were doing and feeling. And, you know, I, I had a lot of mentors that helped me kind of break out of my comfort zone and start speaking and start, you know, writing blogs and, and, you know, being the leader on certain technical discussions that I wouldn't have previously felt, you know, comfortable in. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been like lots of wins and losses and, you know, maybe frustrations and tears, but it's also been a lot of people helping me too over the years. And I think still, even at Microsoft, I still have a lot of like really good mentors and allies um, within the company that are continuing to help me. And even people that work at other cloud platforms that I talk to that I find helpful. So to wrap all that up, my, uh, my take on it is that I try to stay as people focused as possible. Yeah, I mean that's it's something that I've I've had the progression uh, personally of of going from technology is all that matters. Okay, I guess people matter a little bit more than technology. Okay, people might be the most important part to making this a successful project and going through that full journey and seeing that happen. So, it's very interesting to hear that your perspective of seeing that and and hearing that that you kind of don't you're not able to get that empathy unless you're you're able to understand where people are coming from and their their backgrounds with everything. I know that we've had times where we go in and we do a consulting project and we're asking those questions and and we start realizing they're talking about serverless, but there's a lot of other areas that are very important to tackle. And, and exactly what you said is once you understand that, then you can flag things down and be like, yeah, actually, maybe let's tackle revision control first. Maybe let's tackle other parts of, of the process that are more important. And then past that point, then you can start laying down a foundation for how they can move existing stuff and 
and not so much throwing everything out with the bathwater. And so you mentioned something there, which is a good a good pivot, which is uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and the meetup community that you're helping foster there. Do you mind going into some detail about what the JavaScript user group in Norfolk is and the Revolution Conference? And I guess as well as how has that been in 2020 and have y'all been completely frozen? Yeah, yeah. So I started the JavaScript user group with my now husband, Travis, I guess now like eight years ago or something. I think we just hit our eighth anniversary. And the JavaScript user group is really interesting because we already had a well-established.NET user group here, which was great. And then I went to sometimes, but I wasn't, at that point, I was not really in the Microsoft ecosystem and I you know, wasn't writing .NET and I'm still not writing .NET now. And there was also a Ruby group, which Ken Collins uh, started. He's been on this podcast before. And there were a couple other sort of smaller groups. But the JavaScript group, I think, was really good because even people who were writing .NET or Ruby or doing other things were also going to the JavaScript group. And then, you know, I think at some point we created a Slack organization locally. I wasn't the one who did that, but I, you know, I kind of was sort of helping that along. And that's been really, really helpful. And the Slack community has continued on throughout the pandemic, even when, you know, our user group has mostly been frozen. We had kind of a video holiday party, but we haven't had any meetups this year. We haven't had a super big interest in doing virtual meetups. And so we're just kind of waiting it out, I think. And we've even discussed maybe trying to do some outdoor meetups or something in the spring or summer. But Kevin Griffin, who runs the .NET group, you know, sort of established group, which I think is, you know, something like 11, 12 years running now. Kevin and I became good friends in the community. And, you know, he and I and a couple other people kind of just talked about how we needed a conference here locally. And so that's kind of how Revolution Comp started with kind of several of us on the board um, representing various user groups. And then kind of the idea of Revolution Comp, it sort of had a little bit of a JS Comp feel to it where JS Comp was a like a family friendly conference. The idea was that JS Comp was always at like, at least JS Comp US was always at like a resort area. So the idea was you'd go for the week and you'd bring your family and your family would go hang out at the pool while, you know, you went to the conference. And that was always really nice because most of the time people in tech, you're going to lots and lots of conferences in interesting places. And then your partner, your children are at home and you don't get to see your family. And that really ruins the experience of the conference. And honestly, too, it isn't great for your family when you're in Florida and, you know, they're stuck back in like Wisconsin or something, you know? So the idea was that we would pay for speaker travel. We would, you know, engage in our personal relationships to get the best speakers possible. You know, we would tr- do what we could financially to get them there and say, hey, we're going to put you up at a nice hotel at the beach in Virginia Beach, and then just kind of wait for the, the attendees to come. And people really enjoyed it. They liked the beach location. They liked the diverse set of speakers that we had. We gave out tons of diversity scholarships every year um, to various groups and also to veterans as well. And so that was nice. So we just, I don't know, it just, it became a really great community. And um, we had 
I guess, luckily decided not to do it last year because we had just, you know, we've honestly gotten kind of burnt out. It's just, you know, with between Kevin's group and my group and our careers and just things happening, doing it three years in a row and really having to fight for fundraising in such a small area like Norfolk, it just, you know, it became a lot. And so we were like, okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to regroup, see what we want to do. And then the pandemic struck. So we got very lucky because, you know, about the time that things were starting to shut down would have been when we were like securing, you know, our space and paying for speaker travel. And it would have been very bad. So we we got kind of lucky. But I think that we are going to put something else together under the Revolution Comp umbrella, probably like maybe next year or something. It may not be Revolution Comp because I think our idea of conferences is changing, but we're going to do something. The other thing I, I guess I want to mention too as the JavaScript group was that one of our big events every year was NodeBots. Um, this is also kind of a carryover from JSConf. And I was a volunteer for JSConf for a couple of years. Chris Williams, who started JSConf, was you know one of the owners of the startup that I worked for and, and like one of my ment- mentors. And I, you know, so... A lot of Chris's ideas kind of carried over into some of the things that I've done here locally in Virginia. But we started a NodeBots day that we did for, I think, five or six years where we had something like, in our last room, we had 300 people come and build little sumo bots and program them. And, you know, it was just a totally free community event. And so I would say with the pandemic, not being able to do node bots is probably like my biggest disappointment <laughs> because every year starting like March, April timeframe, we were all in on node bots, even with revolution ha- comp happening at the same time, you know, we were always gearing up for this node bots event. And to be honest, I don't know when we'll be able to do something like that. Like in the current state of the world, I just don't see where people are going to be okay with sending their kids to go hang out with 300 other people. So we might have to see how that evolves. But Paul Chin Jr., who was also in this podcast, is like a huge part of NodeBots Day and has been the MC for several years. And I think you know he credits some of his learning of JavaScript to like getting really excited about NodeBots and programming robots to JavaScript. So yeah, the community here is is wonderful. It's small. It's like you know, we're not, Norfolk is just kind of a blip on the map and, you know, a Navy town, but everyone is basically friends here and everyone chats with each other every day. And yeah, it's a good place to be, I think. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's become even more, more clear the, how involved you are in the community and how many different things are running. Revolution comps, node bots, JavaScript user group. And so I guess just, you know, you mentioned something earlier as well about the serverless community being pretty close knit. Uh, it's still a maturing community. It's probably not as mature as JavaScript or Node.js or something like that, that, that has a, a lot more of a, a probably a user base and audience. Using your background and thinking about that, are, are we doing enough in the serverless community? Are there other ways that you think that it could be improved? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think it's hard to say right now with the pandemic. You know, I mean, it just makes things difficult because you know, serverless comp, I loved every year. I'd been going since serverless comp Austin. 
And, you know, I have to, um, I have to give a shout out to a cloud guru because a cloud guru gave me a free ticket to serverless comp Austin. I wasn't going to be able to go cause I was working for a, a startup that couldn't really, you know, afford to just send me to Austin and buy the ticket. And, um, I submitted a talk and the talk wasn't quite interesting enough to be accepted, but it was interesting enough that they were like, do you want to come attend? <laughs> and then I did end up speaking, you know, for the next three years at serverless comp, but I think, though, having those big conferences in the serverless community really helped to bring people together and across cloud, too. I mean, I have that's how I met, you know, all these various people who work for IBM and AWS and GCP was at these conferences. And I think, too, it helped foster more diversity in the community, too, because lots of people from various backgrounds would come to the conferences, meet people, get excited, and then maybe they would speak the the following year. It's harder to foster that community on Twitter. I mean, there's just a lot of, you know, negativity and a lot of, there's a lot of like big voices that sort of drown out smaller voices in social media. And so I think it's difficult. I think serverless days has done a really good job kind of with having like discord and having like a really diverse set of speakers and topics and cross cloud and like, you know, lots of like use case scenarios and things like that. And um, there's some really good, you know, kind of pillars in the community that are on the board of serverless days. So I think that is helpful. I want to keep supporting those conferences, but I think that it's just going to be hard for the community to grow and improve until we can like start seeing each other in person. And unfortunately, there's only so much you can do behind a computer. So we're, you know, I don't want to say it's stalled because it's constantly growing and there's lots of great things happening. And the technology is evolving, which is allowing lots more people to get involved. I think that serverless is very accessible. I think it is harder for people to break into communities. Like, I don't want to pick on Kubernetes here, but Kubernetes is very complex. And I think it is a little bit overwhelming to people trying to get into that community. I think the CNCF is really fostering a lot of that kind of with some of those projects and some of the ambassadors. So that's good. But I still feel like serverless is much more accessible, that it's very, it's much easier to go find a tutorial how to use Azure Functions or AWS Lambda and just deploy something and get up and running. And there's also been a lot more movement, you know, in both AWS and and Azure. Um, I'm not as familiar as G- with GCP, but there's been a lot of movement more for front-end developers, you know, to be able to create static web apps and like, you know, Jamstack with a serverless backend API. There's been a much more push there to kind of foster more of that front-end developer community within serverless too. And I think that then makes it more accessible to more people. So I think that's very, very good. So yeah, I think it's kind of up to the individual, like large companies, I think, to help kind of, you know, support the community, support diversity in the community, support, you know, like pushing people to submit more content and conferences and things like that. But, you know, I'm not 
like hold any anyone accountable until until we can actually see each other in person because it's just everything all community things are just like very difficult right now no totally yeah it's uh it's a really good point i I know the reinvent 2020 virtual conference happened i spoke to yen on the last podcast about that yen kui about that and and we kind of talked a little bit about how it's that you know usually people go for the networking they go to see people in person you know the human to human interaction and so when you take that away it kind of just becomes like you know watching like youtube talks or something and then and it kind of loses a little bit of that you know thing i know for me i went to the last uh serverless conference that was actually my first one that i went to and you know i got to meet the serverless framework people in person lamigo epstagon got to see a whole bunch of talks uh if you were there as well we probably crossed each other in the i'm sure we did yeah <laughs> So I got to I got to see everyone and and kind of get uh you know more of like oh wow all these people that are on Twitter are actually here real human beings in person so that was cool. Going back to one of your points, it was you said it was harder to break into something like Kubernetes. We actually just took on uh, three interns at Serverless Guru recently. Uh, this is fresh as of like this week, and I'm starting to see some of that similarity with although Serverless is more accessible, there's still like there's still like a blocker and like how do all these things work together coming from, you know, it's like a six month code school. They learn how to build like JavaScript applications and a little bit of back end, a little bit of front end, but the, it means so many things now, right? Like that umbrella has gotten pretty big of what serverless encapsulates. And so I know that in the talks that you gave, you kind of talked a little bit about that. So for you, what is, what does serverless mean to somebody? What does serverless mean in general? <laughs> I think since the beginning of me doing talks ever since, you know, even like my Taylor Swift talk from forever ago, I've been kind of still pushing that serverless is event driven. And so for me, when I'm talking about event driven architectures, I tend to consider those to be serverless. But there are a lot of people that still consider serverless to be as fully managed as possible. But that definition is kind of getting a little shaky when you start looking at things like you know, functions running in Kubernetes. And now, you know, AWS Lambda now supports containers. And there's now a lot more, um, like that's now changing where, um, yeah, serverless is now like pay as you go, maybe it started, it, it, you know, it's also another definition and that's also a little shaky. So I tend to go with event driven as my definition of like kind of what serverless means, like a serverless architecture is an event driven architecture. And at the root of it all, it's going to be maybe some sort of building block fast that's triggered by an event. And then maybe some of the other characteristics is that, you know, you don't pay for something sitting in a VM or, you know, it is going to tend to be much more managed and you are going to maybe, you know, get some variety of lock-in, you know, (laughs) but, you know, I think when I first started talking about serverless, it was very like, fast centric. And you mentioned serverless framework. I love serverless framework. Um, I haven't done as much with serverless framework recently because I haven't been doing as many like sort of cross platform applications. I've been sticking mainly to to Azure. I still have a few like AWS bots and things that I, I maintain and I still sort of keep up with the AWS ecosystem, but I haven't really been doing much cross platform. So I've just been kind of using a lot of the native tools, but I think that like frameworks like that were also a lot more important to me when like I was more focused on fast, but especially within Azure, 
Serverless is really an ecosystem. I mean, serverless is functions, but serverless is also logic apps and it's also event grid, you know, and to some extent it's like our API management tool and there's all these sort of pieces that fit together in this event-driven architecture. And then something that I've been really interested in too, um, I mean, a lot of my talks, I have said very clearly, like, I don't always want to deal with containers. Like sometimes I find containers to be too heavy or too much to deal with. And I just want to push my code somewhere and have it run. But I think over the years, talking to customers and sort of seeing more use cases, I started kind of understanding that it was going to be, even if I personally don't want to deal with that, it was going to be necessary always for customers to be able to like roll their own runtime or, you know, maybe possibly have this use case of, you know, like your fast being portable to some extent, you know, like I've written a little bit about, you know, running function Azure functions and Kubernetes and then using the open source tool Kata, you know, for the event driven piece of that. Um, so you could do an event-driven scaling in Kubernetes. And that starts to get a l- really, really deep. And that sort of gets out of the idea of serverless being fully managed, but it's still event-driven. So that's why that still kind of remains my definition. But I think that I used to be a little bit more of a serverless purist back in the day. <laughs> and some of my original talks will kind of reflect that. But there was a, a panel I was on. It was like serverless days, New York or something. And a question on the panel was, what do you think every cloud platform needs to support serverless? So the question was something like that. And I said, I think they need the ability to, for you to, to supply your own container, to not have to use an existing runtime. And, you know, and I felt like when I said that there was like a record scratch in the back of the room, you know, someone was like, whoa, that's not serverless at all. But I think even you know, now even AWS is is going that direction because I think that's just a necessity. I just think, especially in the enterprise, they can't always trust like whatever, you know, Node.js version or whatever, even like, even something like layers, you know, or like divining your own custom runtimes, like things like that just aren't quite enough. Um, Customers need a little bit more control. So I think it's really, yeah, it's interesting to see that evolution. And I, I kind of go down those rabbit holes now. I'm not quite the purist I once once was about serverless has to be X, Y, Z. I still kind of think of it as, you know, serverless is for developers and it's for developers to kind of get there faster and for developers to not have to care about infrastructure. But if you do want to care about infrastructure, you have that choice as well. If you do need more control, if you do need to be able to like see things inside the black box and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, looking back at some of my old talks, I will look back at them and think, okay, I was onto something here. I was foreseeing the future. And sometimes I'll look at them and go, no, I was wrong. I was definitely being too much of a purist and I wasn't looking at the big picture or I had not seen enough customer use cases when I gave this talk to really see the big picture here. And, you know, and and truthfully, I do see a lot more use cases now where I think, you know, Kubernetes is the better fit here for whatever reason. You know, I want people to start with serverless, though. I don't want a customer to necessarily go straight from an application deployed to Heroku 
to, okay, I want I'm ready for Kubernetes and Azure. I mean, I don't necessarily think that's the right path. And so that's where I go back to people and asking questions and what are they comfortable with? And if that is their ultimate goal, where can we go along the way? And maybe serverless is a step along the way. Maybe it's part of the solution. Maybe it is the solution. So yeah, I don't know. I've, I've gone from just being very like rigid to now just being, I guess, much more understanding of, of use cases and appreciative that the technology can support so many different things that people want to do. I don't think that it's going anywhere. I think the future is probably that something like Kubernetes is going to be in the background running and that things are just going to continue to get more and more abstracted and have that serverless feel kind of on the front end. So. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, two years from now, I'll listen to this podcast and go, oh, I don't even know what I was talking about because I was wrong about that too. <laughs> but <laughs> there you go. That's what that's what it's like with emerging technologies. You have to be like a little bit humble. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's interesting to see the serverless purists and then the panel discussion and then saying that, uh, and I can imagine when you said that you should have container, bring your own container. Then, Like you said, the record scratched. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Um, But I think, you know, I've definitely seen this in my personal progression as a consultant and just being at the enterprise level and working with these different teams. There's a lot of gray area and there's a lot of it's not black and white. You can't just like jump to serverless. You can't just throw away the applications that have been making the companies millions of dollars for the past 15 years. You can't just completely toss away an entire team. It's like teams have to transition. Applications have to transition. And the knowledge that you already have kind of has to, to transition as well. And although it's nice to look at things from like a startup perspective, where it's like a, a fresh piece of paper and we're starting from today, sometimes it's not, that's not realistic for the entire, uh, the entire audience or the entire, you know, all these companies. And so, yeah, so it's cool to hear uh, you've kind of gone into that. And I haven't gone as deep into the usage of containers in a serverless format, but I definitely follow the same uh, line of thinking that people should start with serverless and then start with something simple. And then as things get more advanced or you find like edge cases where maybe the the traffic, like the amount of uh, requests per second is so high that you need to use something else or there's some limitation or like you said, you have to bring your own runtime or, you know, people are scared and they want to be able to have the ability to move to different cloud providers very easily and, and have that redundancy in place. So yeah, so I guess uh, that's a perfect perfect answer to the question about what does serverless mean. And uh, yeah, thinking about you know how serverless has grown now, Microsoft Azure has been growing a lot in the serverless space for quite a while now. Do you mind giving an idea for for someone like me? I come from AWS. I learned that for working with serverless applications. I know that Azure and both GCP have some serverless offerings, uh, but specifically on Azure, what does that look like for a serverless developer? I think there's still server services that still align to each other. I mean, you know, even back when I was giving my serverless love story talk that you saw. Um, so at the time I was working for a consultancy that was, you know, multi-cloud. And, and so the startup that I worked for that was Emerging Technologies was actually acquired by a very cloud-focused consultancy. And so it was part of my job to think about app modernization and serverless cross cloud. So 
I spent a lot of time examining what I thought each platform did well and didn't do well. And that, and so those were a lot of my talks. And I've even given some of these like sort of cross-platform talks, even since I joined Microsoft. But yeah, once upon a time, though, you could just say like, okay, if I look across fast functions and Lambda and you know, like something like OpenWhisk or like IBM Cloud Functions, and then maybe also like OpenFast or some of these other tools. That's all, they're all the same and you just use them exactly the same. And then you have some sort of like API gateway type thing, maybe. And then, you know, you have some sort of like NoSQL database, like a Dynamo or a Cosmos kind of thing. You know, like each architecture, you could kind of like just plug and play the different services but that's not so much the case anymore. I mean, I think that each cloud platform just has very different priorities. And I think that those priorities like start to become really evident when you're moving from one cloud cloud platform to another. And so, you know, I think if you look at Azure Functions, you know, the function runtimes are all open source. And so they came out with their priority being to try to be very open, you know, and this idea that you could always kind of containerize and run your function app anywhere. I think one really big distinction with Azure Functions and Lambda, uh, if you're comparing the two, is that in Azure Functions, you have a concept of a function app, which is multi- that includes multiple functions. And you can have a, a, you know, you can have a ton of functions in there, but it's an idea of it. It's sort of like a, a logical separation there, where if you have, you know, five functions that have like a, you know, I don't know, they're, they're doing something similar, basically, they're related, you can put them within one function app. And then, you know, or let's say you have multiple languages, then you could have one function app that's like all your, you know, kind of Node.js, and then another one's .NET, that sort of thing. So that's, that's one big thing, you know, the ability to containerize. I'm not as familiar now with like some of the later, like sort of latest features of Lambda because I just like haven't really been using it or I I guess when I'm updating my AWS applications I'm probably just using some like really old version of everything but I think that we also have some really interesting ideas like um, durable functions for sort of like longer running functions or like if you're chaining functions logic apps which there's like some comparison there between logic apps and step functions but logic apps is a much more like no code type tool. Um, it is, you can use it for state machines. It's used for workflows. A lot of, you know, large enterprises use it for, you know, integrations with on-prem systems or systems in other clouds or, you know, connecting to um, systems like Salesforce, you know, or sending emails or, so Logic Apps is really, really interesting. And I think if you are not maybe in the Azure ecosystem, you would know about that. I think Event Grid is really cool too. I know AWS has some service that's like Event Grid, but I can't think of the name of it. <laughs> but Event Grid's been out there for a while. I kind of feel like maybe that was something when I started working on, on Azure that I was like, oh, this is nice. Okay, this is going to make things a lot more organized and I'm going to be able to have, create custom events. And that really helps sort of things flow on the event-driven side. But I think though, you know, it's just a matter of like, you know, if somebody's moving from one cloud platform to another, or they're just diversifying or, you know, trying to understand what another cloud platform is doing, I think there's some similar, you know, pieces you could plug and play there, but it's just, 
you'll understand that there is just like a different culture, I think, in each cloud platform. You know, and it is my personal opinion that Azure just does try to be very open source first. So I, I think that we are a little bit more open. You know, I think it's it's easier to sort of understand um, like what's running behind the scenes for a lot of uh, the services. But yeah, I'm being, I'm sort of like treading lightly. I don't want to insult other cloud platforms by any means, but I think things are just different. There's just different priorities. And if you're used to building event-driven architectures, I don't think you're going to move to Azure and I don't think, or even GCP and just be like, oh, okay, I can't do what I wanted to do or I can't develop in the same way. I think that you might find development to be like a really great experience on on Azure because, you know, everything kind of tends to be VS code driven, you know, even, even logic apps, you know, you can create logic apps within VS code now and all of the extensions. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, community built extensions for VS code, but obviously like Microsoft, you know, dedicates a lot of human power and money to VS code. So our extensions are going to be part of the strategy for that service. So I think that that our developer experience, which, you know, thinking back to my love story talk, I probably, I think, highlighted this within the talk because I think it's been my feeling even before I came to Microsoft that Microsoft was, had a very developer focus. Whereas I always felt like AWS was much more of like a powerhouse that, you know, the focus of Lambda was to, you know, be as fast as possible. Whereas I felt like maybe in Azure, the strategy was a little, to be a little more open, a little more developer focused. And that's kind of my feeling developing on Azure versus when I was developing in AWS. Can't really speak to GCP or, or IBM these days because I'm not really doing much in either platform though. Yeah, no, it's a, it's very interesting to hear this full breakdown. There's tons of tons of things. I'm sure we could could probably talk on this podcast for. Yeah, I mean, it's always easier if you if you just kind of ping me on Discord or something, and you're like, "Hey, I'm moving my lambda to a function, and this why is this like this?" And then I could answer that really easily. It's hard for me from like an umbrella point of view to say these are the differences. The the main thing is the the function app of multiple functions is always maybe a little bit confusing to people when they first, you know, try to understand like how functions work and how they scale, you know, and then then of course looking at the larger ecosystem. Yeah, the uh the function app part, I I feel like I have nightmares about how the names are and the vocabulary of like <laughs> we have serverless, we have like apps, we have services, we have microservices, and everyone has a different de- definition about how that looks and, and how they're constructed and how they're organized. And and it feels like there's sometimes you're just trying to fit things into an existing word just so that it's like, it makes sense. And it's hard to think about what a new word might look like. And you don't want to jump in and introduce something completely new just to make something new. So it's like, yeah, vocabulary. <laughs> but um, I had a question that, that kind of popped up based on hearing uh, the breakdown of of Azure. I think Logic Apps first off. I just highlight that one. I think that that's a very interesting one that definitely I I personally want to look into more. But the question would be: Thinking 10, 15 years into the future, what does it look like? What does the landscape look like in terms of? I'm thinking more on the dark side of uh, maybe some products won't be continued into the future. Maybe some like 
teams 10 years from now are going to have to pick up the legacy serverless applications that we're building today? And what cloud provider do you think may stand this test of time? And what do you think are the core components to long lasting stuff? Is it open source? Is it closed? Is it uh, having a container being able to be swapped in? Is it active support for the feature? What does that look like to you? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm, um, I'm obligated by my employer to say that Microsoft will, you know, stand out as the greatest cloud platform ever 15 years from now. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, no, I think the way things work now where you have kind of the three big monsters really, and each cloud platform is sort of fighting against each other and you know, and then you have customers who are just determined that there's this lock-in of a cloud provider. And so most companies are really diversifying. Most companies are not all in on one provider. So I think that all three cloud platforms, the big ones, are going to exist. Plus, I think there are going to be new ones. I think that even companies like Salesforce and Oracle are going to start coming out with their own sort of varieties of competition. I think Gali Alibaba, you know, I think that there's going to be more cloud platforms. I think the current three big ones are going to continue to dominate. I think GCP will get more traction. They'll be a harder competitor. In the serverless space, I mean, I think Lambda has always been ahead because they were first, you know, and I think that AWS internally they dedicate so much to Lambda because it really is kind of a gateway drug. I think they dedicate enough resources to it also that it's always just going to be a really like first class service. But I do think that over time, that sort of like parity between services is going to go away just because I think that the priorities of each platform are going to continue to like sort of fan out differently. And so I think that, you know, Microsoft and Google are very invested in Kubernetes and they will continue to be. And so I think that that will cause a little bit of a difference between in the paths where AWS goes versus GCP and, and Azure. That's kind of my thought. I don't know of any, of any features like sort of going away. I just think that things are going to become more and more abstracted. I think that the idea of moving to Kubernetes is not going to be the arduous task it is now. I think at some point, like everything is just going to be running in Kubernetes or something like Kubernetes. Maybe Kubernetes isn't cool. And in, in, I mean, 15 years, geez, that sounds forever in the future. But let's say five years from now, maybe Kubernetes isn't it. Maybe there's some other new cool long word beginning with, you know, I don't know, T or something, <laughs> you know, T, you know, so like, yeah, it's hard to say, but I think you hit the nail on the head with open source. Personally, I think the success of Kubernetes is the fact that it was open source. I think that contributed a lot to it. I think that companies and developers like are going to be less and less okay with things being a complete black box. I think they're going to want to peek under the covers to some extent. But then conversely, things are going to become more and more abstracted where you don't have to if you don't want to. Yeah, but I think maybe five years from now, though, we won't like, it won't be quite so like building an architecture on AWS may be very, very different than building one on, on Azure five years from now. I don't know. Just the priorities just seem to still be somewhat different, even though you have the same customer building the same 
version of an application on maybe on three different cloud platforms. But yeah, this is just me, you know, saying lots of words that, like I said, I may look back on and go, oh, you were completely wrong. Or Linda, you were a genius in 2021. Nice. Yeah. No, it's it's cool to hear the um, even just to mentally imagine the different pathways opening up for the different cloud providers based on culture, seeing how those things develop and then thinking about long term, like what changes and what what new 16 letter or 16, yeah, 16 letter T word will pop up to help manage things. And, and it's interesting to hear the one of the questions that I had written down was what makes the ideal state of a architecture? And I know that you mentioned that things are going to continuously be abstracted away. Maybe Kubernetes will be under the hood when with the conversations happening around like no code, less code, and also ideal architecture into the future with continuation of abstractions. What will that look like in a couple of years from now or even or even this year? What do you think the where are we headed? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what you're touching on there too, mentioning the low code, no code, there is this idea of citizen developers, you know, and, and Microsoft is really all in on that with logic apps, but also our power platform, you know, which is like a low code, no code workflows and chatbots and AI and, and applications. And I think we're seeing a lot of people who are not your traditional developers, or maybe people who never want to write code, maybe they're business people, like becoming citizen developers, like within their company saying, okay, well, I know I have all this data in SharePoint, or I have a bunch of data in Excel spreadsheets, or even, you know, I have data in a large database, um, or I've data, I have, you know, data in Azure, and I want to just create reports, or I want to create really simple user applications and things like that. That whole idea is really gaining a lot of traction. It's causing some people who never knew that they wanted to develop to, I mean, honestly, it kind of harkens back to like my beginnings with Microsoft Access. I wasn't a developer at the time. I had barely taken a C class in college. I never thought I was going to be a developer. But it was just very easy to kind of drag and drop fields and connect them, you know, to database tables and to learn like database design and that sort of thing. And then I just, I created tons and tons and tons of internal applications for this government entity that I worked for. And some of those applications stayed around forever, like over a decade. And at the time I was known as shadow IT. You know, like the real IT people, the real developers were saying, well, it's going to take me six months to write this application for you. Um, so wait in line. And then they would come to me and say like, hey, can you like make something in access so I can keep track of whatever? Or, you know, can you connect this access application to SQL Server or Oracle database even and show that data in a form? Um, and then I could do that and I would do it like over a weekend or something and give them access to it. And so now shadow IT is like being brought out into the light and this idea of citizen developers and some citizen developers are saying, oh, okay, hey, I really enjoyed this drag and drop kind of no code environment. I want to dig deeper and become a coder. Some people say, no, I, I'm still a business person or, you know, but I just, I liked the idea that even I could create a website to show data that I needed to show the small subset, maybe of a gigantic data system. So I think that 
that is this whole other area of cloud that is starting to emerge. And so I think that there's going to be some more support on that front too. And I think that Microsoft is already kind of there, like, you know, and I'm not sure about the other cloud platforms in this particular scenario, but Microsoft is already very much supporting this and saying, okay, we're not only going to introduce non-traditional developers to something like Power Platform or Logic Apps, but we're also going to now show them how to connect that to Azure or connect it to Office 365 and full data. So then, then this becomes sort of this other evolving thing within Azure because we're thinking about how to support developers and support applications, but also how are we going to support data and APIs and connections for the citizen developers too. So yeah, it's still very much a developer focus. It's still very much this focus of being very open, but now we're also supporting non-developers, like I don't want to say non-developers, but like, you know, these citizen developers, the, the shadow IT people, the people who are tinkering and want to get things done quickly. So yeah, I may have just gone off on a gigantic tangent there, but <laughs> I've gotten very excited. <laughs> I get very excited about it because I did come from a traditional, a non-traditional background and I've seen some really smart people create really cool things in Power Apps. And then connecting to, you know, our services within Azure, like API management, you know, coming from AWS, API management is kind of like API gateway plus plus. It's, it's closer to something like Apigee, but it's a fully managed API service. But there's now some direct connections between that and Power Platform. So, you know, if you create a bunch of APIs in Azure, then... It, that allows kind of your citizen developers to very easily access that data and then create their own application. So I think that there will be a certain amount of evolution of services to support that in the future, at least definitely in Azure. Yeah, no, it's uh, really interesting. I've never heard citizen developers before, but I think it's a perfect word to describe. You know, like I, I think about my my dad, just like he's got to give presentations. He's like a sales guy. And he's got to pitch a client on, you know, their services. And then he has to try to create uh, presentations and try to wow them and connect that data together to make those uh, calculations and all that stuff. And I know there's probably times where he's sitting there going like, I know what, I just want to make it work, but he has to have somebody else do it because the, the, the barrier is too big. So I, I like the idea that in the future, you know, people like my dad can just have the idea about what they want to see you know, plug some stuff together, not like actively like writing code and then make things work and then play around with it and then feed that back to the, you know, the non-shadow IT team to then actually build something out more formal off that idea. It's definitely a very empowering thought. So, you know, if you're, if you're somebody like you're Jeff Bezos or you're, you know, Satya, and you're thinking about growth, if you're looking at 15 years from now, then like growth has to be exponential, like 15 years from now. So at some point, like I remember not too long ago, maybe five years or so ago, there started to be this kind of discussion happening where people were saying, we're going to run out of developers. Like if you look at how many people are graduating from CS programs, how many people are graduating from boot camps, even non-traditional people that are in technical fields that could be developers, there's not enough for the jobs that we're going to need when we consider how much the cloud's going to grow, that companies are going to go into the cloud, that everything's going to become online. 
And we've definitely seen that during the pandemic, for sure. Like companies that did not think they were going virtual suddenly had to be virtual very quickly. And so there started to be this idea of like, okay, we need to start really focusing on STEM and training kids because we need to get those kids out quickly. Like, you know, as soon as those kids are old enough to work, we've got to get them coding to like fill this gap. Well, I think at some point, you know, someone got the kind of light bulb like, oh, wait, no, we'll just take the adults and other, you know, kind of industries that are smart and interested and capable, and we'll give them the tools. We still need these kids to fill these slots, but also there's just tons of people out there who need jobs. And, you know, there's just like tons and tons of power platform openings at big corporate companies right now. And so, yeah, it's creating a a new like a new career path for a lot of people. And also it's filling this gap because I know that the these, you know, huge leaders in industry are thinking like, man, we're gonna need to hire a thousand more developers to support this new online application. Where are we gonna find these people? They're just, you know, there aren't even enough people graduating. So anyway, this is another way to kind of fill that gap. So it's really interesting to look at it from a business perspective. I mean, it, you know, yeah, like we're not being completely like altruistic here by saying like, yeah, we really want to teach the world to code. No, there's actually like a need for jobs and we got to put, you know, warm bodies in those jobs. So how are we going to teach more people how to code or, you know, contribute to technology in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard the, uh, I just picked up the book. I think Alex DeBry recommended it on Twitter. It was uh, Ask Your Developer by Jeff Lawson, the CEO of Twilio. And it talks about how developers are creatives and when you have something in your organization, you know. And I think part of the creativity, like, I think part of it stems from the ability that we can actually create stuff and we know the process of, like, creating things. And I think when we think about this, you know, empowering thought of, like, in the future, people will be able to, business people that may not be, uh, you know, traditional coders, they can actually tap into that creativity. I think it's like, it's a spark, right? I think a lot of things come off, off of that, which we can't predict currently. And that future just sounds very exciting. So I like the idea of, of what you're describing with power apps and, and logic apps and, you know, giving these, you know, the, giving these tools to the, you know, the average person to pick up and then explore further. And, and then who knows, maybe transition to doing coding as well. So that's, that's really cool. Shameless plug, um, I spoke at Create Serverless, which was a Microsoft internal conference in the fall. And uh, Donna Sarkar and I um, did a, a joint presentation. And it was really fun working with Donna. She's she's like a legend in Microsoft. And so I was just really excited to work with her. But she and I did a presentation kind of talking about low code, no code, and kind of showing how you could connect Azure with a, with a power app. And we sort of, you know, kind of just had a fun little chat. So if anyone's kind of interested, um, you know, you could check that out on YouTube. Awesome. Yeah, that was actually my next question. So as we're wrapping up this episode, uh, do you have anything to uh, shout out, promote any, what ways could people get in touch with you? Uh, those type of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think probably the easiest way is maybe Twitter. I, you can find me on, on Twitter at, um, at Linaloo. L-Y-N-N-A-L-O-O. And I'm pretty much the same handle everywhere. I think I'm not on Snapchat, but I'm on all kinds of various, um, you know, discords and and slacks as well. But um, also, you know, people can connect with me on LinkedIn too. I'm I'm starting to become a little, a little 
choosier about, you know, accepting people on LinkedIn because it's just a ton of noise, but, you know, send me a LinkedIn message and, and I'll, uh, I'll read it. And then on my LinkedIn profile too, I try to link a lot of my talks, you know, and blogs and things on there. Um, I'm not a huge blogger, but I have been blogging on dev too a little bit um, this year. I'm trying to, you know, branch out like everyone is during the pandemic and trying to find other ways to kind of contribute to the community without physically being somewhere. Yeah. And, and, and email too, as well. But I think Twitter is probably the place that I actually like check my notifications more often. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, definitely check out all these different channels and forums of getting in contact with uh, Linda. And Linda, thanks again for joining me for an episode. Yeah, absolutely. It was great meeting you. And I had a great time. I feel like I'm out of breath because I just like I was very excited, (laughs) had so much to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was totally good hearing just like all the rabbit holes. Um, So uh, thanks again. (laughs) And uh, to those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out talkingserverless.io. And uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts if you found this content valuable. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest. Thank you.